This episode of Clever is brought to you by Carl Hansen and Son. It is important for us that we have a clean conscience as well when we produce the furniture that we do. Our customers demand it. They love that that it is a clean product. Hi everyone. I'm Amy Devers and this is Clever. In this special Clever Extra, we're discussing the timeless appeal of Danish design. Known for exceptional craftsmanship and an alluringly clean organic aesthetic, many of the now iconic pieces of the Danish modern era were actually considered too avant-garde for the Danes initially and found their foothold in the American market. Now, after decades of adding warmth, depth, and sophisticated polish to spaces and having endured for generations, these well-made wooden chairs and other beloved furniture pieces have carved themselves onto our global design consciousness and into hearts and homes the world over. To understand this long-term love affair, in true clever fashion, I'm going back to the beginning and tracing the path forward to the here and now. I'm talking to Eric Hansen, director and third-generation owner of family-operated Danish furniture manufacturer Carl Hansen & Son, and Roman Alonso, designer and founding partner of Commune, a studio responsible for popular retail and hospitality interior design projects for Ace Hotels, Goop, Tartine, and Heath Ceramics, among others. Well, all right, let's get into it. My name is uh, Knut Erik Hansen. Usually, uh, in English, I'm only using my name, Erik. I am uh, the managing director of Carl Hansen & Son, which is uh, a furniture manufacturer in Denmark. We have our factory uh, here in the middle of Denmark on Funen Island, close to Odense, where Hans Christian Andersen grew up and worked. We are a 112-year-old company, and I'm third-generation owner. So my name is uh, Roman Alonso, and I'm a principal at Commune Design in Los Angeles. We're a multidisciplinary design studio. In a nutshell, we design commercial and residential interiors, as well as graphic identities and products that fill those spaces. So I am excited to have this conversation with both of you. I really want to set the stage and lay the groundwork for our listeners, because this is a story of intergenerational and intercontinental collaboration. So I am interested to hear a little bit about the backstory of Carl Hansen. It was established, you said it's 112 years old. So that means it was established in 1908 and initially run by your grandfather, Carl, then your father, Holger. And your mother also played a significant part of the history. So why don't you help us out with the origins? Yes, I would love to. It's correct. We uh, were founded here in uh, in Odense in 1908 by my grandfather. He was uh, qualified as a carpenter and he got uh, his permission to open his own business. And he did. He had a, an objective of producing furniture at a high quality at a decent price so his customers would feel they got a good deal then they would automatically come back to him that was his theory and he wasn't too wrong in fact he, he built up quite a nice business built a, a nice uh, factory in in 1934 but unfortunately got a heart attack and in those days when you got a heart attack you were kept in bed for months and uh, he also had a bit of diabetes so they took off his one leg so he was a little crippled so my dad got into the business, although he wasn't too happy for that. He was too early in his life, but but he did. He was a very uh, different person to my grandfather. He had a lot of initiative, and he worked uh, worked uh, hard on getting export going and things like that. During the war, we produced furniture made of oak that we have plenty of in Denmark, and therefore we didn't need to import anything. And after the war, we got into seri production. That was something new in those days, but what you may also call mass production that came after the war. For that, you need a good architect. And uh, he uh, knew a one in uh, Copenhagen that made some very avant-garde furniture. His name was Hans J. Wegner. And they met in 1947. Wegner came to our factory in 1949. 
I think he was sent by his wife who wanted him to to make a little bit extra income because he was a, a very, very meticulous carpenter that didn't like uh, too much of, uh, can you say, the modern way of producing. But anyhow, he got over there. They made four pieces of furniture, which he brought with him, uh, the, the prototypes. And when my grandfather saw that, he told my father it was garden furniture. <laughs> so he was uh, sent on pension. My dad uh, then ran the business uh, and built up a, a very big business. A, a very interesting part is that he couldn't sell anything in Denmark. It was way too avant-garde. One of the chairs was the wishbone chair, which I think many people know. Yes, yeah, very iconic. Uh, at, that, at, at that time, it was uh, too avant-garde for everybody here, in at least in Denmark and in Europe. So he went to the United States. He went to New York in 1953. And he met the, the, the Danes that left Denmark in the 30s to sell uh, Royal Copenhagen and George Jensen Silver. They understood the design and they had great luck in selling the, the furniture in the United States, especially in San Francisco. And they built up a big business. So our business, actually, the export of our business started in USA. Then he came back after a month, and then uh, we got also going with the export to Germany, which was all bombed out, and there was built up again by American dollars. And then uh, slowly but surely, he got a big business. But in uh, 1962, he had a heart attack. My father, 50 years old, and he died. And my mother was a housewife with two children, one of 10. That was me and my brother, 15. And uh, she had the choice of uh, closing up the whole business or uh, trying to continue herself. She did not have any formal education in, in running a company. And in 1962, no women in Denmark or anywhere in Europe owned a factory. But uh, she, she got into it. She decided to continue so my brother and I could take over the business one day. And she was very, very good. Uh, she, uh, she ran the business for 20 years. And uh, without any formal uh, background for doing it. And my brother could get into the business in 1982. I felt that I wanted to uh, try something else, uh, to learn uh, in a different way. So I joined a very big Danish company called the East Asiatic Company. And I was sent out and went into shipping. And I'd, I worked most of my time for that company in the Far East, 22 years in the Far East. And 26 years I was employed there. Then I went back because uh, I thought uh, I would try and see if I shouldn't get going on the family business. I felt that uh, it was necessary for us to expand and to uh, get further on with the business. But my brother was not willing to uh, invest what it took. So, in fact, I bought him out in uh, 2002. I took over the business and I took it from there. Today, we are one of the largest uh, furniture manufacturers in Denmark. We have 400 people employed. Uh, we have one uh, factory in Vietnam where we produce uh, contract furniture and outdoor furniture with 1,000 people. And we have flagship stores all over the world in New York and San Francisco. We have shops. We have in USA uh, 20, 25 people employed. We have our own people uh, placed all over the world. We don't work through agents. So that also makes it a little bit different to other furniture companies. So our people are placed all over the world. And we have um, about 100 people outside Denmark. Oh, wow. What a story. I have so many follow-up <laughs> questions. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> As a young boy, did it make a big impression on you to see your mother assume the helm of the family business? I can tell you it did. I still get a lump in my throat sometimes when I think about it because all of a sudden she was 45 years old. They were happily married and uh, my dad just fell over and died and she was alone. Oh. I was 10, as I mentioned, my brother was 15. We were in no way able to take over. She decided uh, I must do it and she did. Money was uh, scarce uh, because when the owner dies, everybody wants their money. Mm -hmm. We were certainly not uh, wealthy. And uh, she didn't speak any foreign languages, but still, she managed. She had a fantastic way of uh, market the, the products and, uh, and make people interested by being very enthusiastic. And uh, they bought from her and she managed. And uh, later on, she got also people employed that could uh, help her with the, with the sales. And the company survived uh, for nearly 20 years. I think that was a great, great effort. And we are very, uh, I think both my brother and I today are very, very grateful for what she did. 
Uh, I am at least, and and uh, I can see what problems she has had. It must have been a tremendous job. Yes. She never married again, uh, but she was also a very good mother to my brother and I. Wow. Th- that's such a powerful story. And I'm also taken with how much love your mother married into the business, essentially, but she must have had so much love for the company and the ethics and the principles and the values of the company in order to assume that role with so much self-sacrifice and sheer fortitude, um, not to mention creativity and strength. You are right. That is exactly right. I know you went off to work with East Asiatic for a while and you learned the ways of the world and the ways of big business before coming back to assume the helm of the family business. One wonders if you are duty-bound or is it a passion of yours as well? It could be baked into the Hansen DNA, um, <laughs> considering it's in your lineage. There's a little bit of everything. I love the business. Uh, I love the company. Uh, I have followed it, and I'm the last person in my family that has known Everybody, even Carl Hansen, I've been sitting on his knees where he has been uh, reading Donald Duck for me. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, it has been, I, I know them all and they are still very fresh in my mind. And I must say that gives you a, a great respect for what they did and for what I have today. Because every generation have done something which is still living in the company. It's still there. My grandfather's way of starting up his business, uh, we, we still stick to that kind of thing. We make top quality products. We are not the cheapest in the world in Denmark. We are certainly a very expensive people, but we make extreme good uh, quality. And my dad got into working with Hans J. Wegner and built up a big factory and big, big business there. Started up the Danish export of furniture to the, to the rest of the world. I mean, he was a very, very industrial person that went for, for anything that he could find to get helped uh, and helped all his colleagues as well. My mother that, that helped uh, the company to, for 20 years to, to carry on to, to the third generation. And my brother uh, ran the company. He didn't expand. He didn't want to invest. But, but still, he ran the company for 20 years too. And then I came in and I could take over a small small company, but I could see the potential in it. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, it is not duty. It is more passion, I think. Uh, I think that's a better, that better word for it because I love the products and I love the people here in the, in the factory. And we have done something which is highly unusual we produce in Denmark. There's only a handful left. The rest of them work outside Denmark, but we produce inside Denmark, which is again a a quality stamp on what we are doing because people here, the craftsmen in Denmark are extremely good. Renowned throughout the world. Roman, I want to weave you into this story. I understand that you have worn many creative hats. You've studied film and art and history and have worked in corporate PR for Barney's and Isaac Mizrahi. And you had your own art publishing company, Graybull Press, for many years. You and your partner, Stephen Johankenecht, founded Commune in 2004. Can you tell me a bit about Commune, how and why you two came together, and what drives your practice? Stephen and I met actually 30 years ago while at Barney's. And this was Barney's when the Pressman family owned the company. So it was a much different Barney's than later. And uh, we worked in the same department, which was the creative services department. Uh, He was in display and store design, and I was in PR. And that department also included advertising. We worked as a team and looked at everything that had to do with any creative events, PR, advertising. It was all kind of looked at by committee, which usually that doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. But at that time with this group, it worked really well. Gene Pressman, who was her boss, had brought in very interesting people, which in retrospect, it was an incredible group. It was Glenn O'Brien and Ronnie Cook and Simon Doonan, um, and Mallory Andrews, who was a really brilliant uh, event producer, and my boss and PR person. I learned a lot from her. So it was a, a really exceptional group of creative people, all young, and they really allowed us a voice. And that experience really shaped Stephen and I. It became our process. 
he went on to work at Banana Republic and Donna Karen, as well as Studio Sofield. He ran that studio for a while. And I went on to work with Isaac Mizrahi and then published books. And it, it, everything we've ever done has been shaped by that experience. Commune is a result of it. It's really us wanting to work in that way, looking at things in a very holistic way, looking at things from all sides, giving everyone in the team a voice, knowing full well that everything you know becomes better when you have um, a lot of uh, heads on it and um, really believing in that. So the name says it, Commune is really about a community of people doing things, uh, whatever that might be, because it's, it's a wide range of things. And we've never felt limited in what we can do. Uh, it's always been about the mix to keep things interesting. And also because we felt that we wanted a design company more than we wanted a design studio. And there's a difference. Ooh, you're going to have to elaborate on that difference. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe an example would help. Um, when we first started the company, we really looked closely at Terence Conran. Um, we read his book as an inspiration, right? And what he created. When he did Habitat, for us, that was a way of looking at commune. We wanted commune to be something that could live well on the bottom of a cup, right? So the idea of working with clients on interiors was almost an excuse to make all the things that would go into those spaces. We felt limited when people said we were interior designers because, in fact, we were not. You know, we had never been trained as such, and we had these very nonlinear backgrounds. I only recently became a little more comfortable with the idea that I was a designer. You know, mm -hmm. it was just something that I never planned to be and kind of became sort of by accident. And I learned everything on the job. So um, the idea of being an interior designer was, was never our, our intention. We just like making things with people. And that is really at the heart of what Commune is, creating a family of creatives that you want to uh, make things with, make, make things that have a great deal of value and personality. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. 
So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. It's so rich that you and Stephen had such a powerful and impactful start together in that committee that was so artfully assembled. And when you experience a kind of magic, and then you go on to experience the rest of the world and understand that that magic is actually really rare, it's a gift to humanity to attempt to recreate that magic and to make your work about assembling those groups of people who all have voices and can all contribute to spaces and products and ideas in a way that it pays it forward, both to the client and to the people who are working for Commune. So I really, I really feel the generosity in that. It is hard to talk about yourself in that way because, um, yeah, it's always interesting to to hear from others um, how they perceive it because it's just a, a hard thing to verbalize. Um, we do hope that what we're doing is creating a process of, see- of seeing things and making things that it, that is moved by those who we work with and those in the studio um, and that they take that information with them wherever they go. Mm-hmm. So that is a big part of it. It, it is, we, and we have a big sort of mentoring program in our studio and um, how we structure things because we want people to, to really um, learn our way of doing things or looking at things. That's beautiful. We always say here at Clever that we like to offer a window into the humanity behind design. And Eric, we have this enormous opportunity with you on the line here. You're about to turn 70. Happy birthday, by the way. Thank you. But you grew up with a front row seat to some of the most celebrated designers of the Danish modern era. Um, You've mentioned Hans J. Wegner, the designer of the iconic wishbone chair, but also Borge Morgensen, Nana Ditzel, and countless others. So I have to ask you, do you have any interesting, fun stories to share with us? (laughs) I think, I don't know how much time you have, because (laughs) I have many. (laughs) Uh, There is perhaps one, uh, one, uh, one I should try and cut down short, because uh, it is, it's actually, all my stories become uh, Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales. (laughs) But uh, but this year, this year is, of course, uh, you know, working with Hans uh, J. Wigner is, of course, a great pleasure. And I know the family very well. So I went for for Hans Wegner's wife's uh, 85 years birthday. And uh, there I spoke to also the the daughter of of, uh, Marianne, of of, uh, Hans Wegner. Her friends came around and they were uh, beautiful uh, elderly uh, ladies uh, that wanted to celebrate uh, Inga. And and therefore I... uh, I was told by Marianne Wigner to let's go down to the studio uh, where Hans Wigner used to work. Usually when I get there, there are no furniture because I uh, I try to get everything. It's like a small child in a, in a candy shop. I want everything. but uh, <laughs> So they usually take away everything. But there was one chair because I was not supposed to get down there. And uh, that chair I loved. I said, that is fantastic. And Marianne said to me, you can't make it. It's very difficult. My dad designed it in uh, 1956, and it has been offered to all your all your clients, but they don't they don't want it. They can't make it. Anyhow, I said I can make it. I was new in the business. I didn't know all the the traps uh, in making furniture, but uh, it was a very simple chair to look at. And I took it. Uh, I, I got permission to bring it to the factory and show it to the carpenters, and then she would she said to me, "Then you'll probably bring it back because they won't make it." But uh, I was very persistent, and today we we, we do make the chair, the the uh, CH twenty. It's called the elbow chair. We actually uh, about a month after I I got permission to make the chair, and uh, it was all approved by by the Wiener Studio. Then um, uh, John Porson phones me from London and asked me if I had anything new to uh, to show uh, for 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 him and. Uh, I did. I have. I did have that chair, and I brought it to to London, uh, 
He looked at it and he went around it. He sat in it and he did that for about 20 minutes. And then he screamed out in his uh, studio that he wanted 2,000. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to him and I said, 2,000 chairs. And he said, yes. And I said, you know, um, okay, how long time do I have? And he said, do you have nine months? I said, okay, fine. I'll make it in nine months, no problem. And then he said, okay, um, what does it cost? And I didn't have a price. So I said, well, about the same as a wishbone chair, a little bit more perhaps. So he wrote that down on an order note. And he said, what is it called? I said, uh, it's called the C820, uh, the elbow chair. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he wrote that down as well and uh, he wrote two thousands and uh, the day he wanted it delivered in Barcelona and I got the I got the order and I went back to the carpenters and said we got an order for two thousand and they nearly died. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, uh, we we started on it and uh, about a month or two months and a half later uh, John Pawson phones me and he says, you know, uh, how many have you made? I said, I, I don't know, three or four hundred, something like that. We are working on it. And he said, no, 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 no. I, I, I have it. something terrible has happened. And the directors of the hotel have changed. And the new directorship, they don't want uh, wooden, wooden furniture. So I asked if it was for the room. No, it was for a banquet, banquet room. Anyhow, so um, I said, it's right. You shouldn't have a, a wooden chair there. You should have a steel chair because they shuffle it around four times a day. Mm. That is hard, hard for a wooden chair. Anyhow, so... Uh, he said, what do I owe you? I said, you don't owe me anything. And we carried on and on and on. He, he's a gentleman. He wanted to pay. And I said, no, I will just sell the furniture. Don't worry. It's a nice and attractive piece of furniture. I can easily sell it. And in the end, I ended up making a compromise with him. I said, you know, you give me a, you do me a favor another day. And about a month later, a German gentleman phones me. His name was Gerd Bulthaupt. And I didn't know who Bulthaupt was. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said he was uh, speaking to John Pawson because he had made a new kitchen, the B3, which was too much of a, a laboratory. It was too cool, mm. uh, too cold. And, and of course, uh, John Pawson said, put some wooden furniture in front of it. And he said, you know, well, how, from who? And he said, from Hansen. <laughs> and then uh, he said, can I come and visit you? I said, of course, you're welcome. So he came over the next day. He spoke German to me, and uh, luckily I also speak German, so I could uh, could answer him. And we uh, we went in to see the factory, and he was so impressed with the machinery work, and then of course all the craftsmanship afterwards, before the furniture is finished. And uh, when he got up again, he said to to his two directors that followed him, "From now on, I only want Carl Hansen furniture in my showrooms." And I asked him very politely, "How many showrooms are we talking about?" And he said, "About four hundred." <laughs> wow. And uh, since then, we have actually supplied Bulldog with a lot of furniture, and they are still a very nice customer of ours, and we appreciate that very much. Uh, but you see what come out of a of a, a cup of tea and a, a cheese sandwich uh, at Inga Wegner's eighty five year birthday. Wow, <laughs> that I love. So that is a fair. It is a fairy tale. Yes, right. <laughs> I, but I love that you painted all of those connections for us, and you also mm -hmm. um, were able to posthumously put a piece into production, which is oh yes. Still yes. <laughs> so, Roman, I'm sure you're very familiar with these stories and obviously Danish design and some of these specific designers that uh, have created iconic pieces with Carl Hansen and son. I'd love to learn what kind of impact, you know, these pieces and Danish design had on your life and work. Um, let's start with like the personal as you're finding your creative voice and using it, how did Danish design influence you? You know, it, it's had a huge influence, actually. Everything I know about this business, I learned in the last, to be honest, in the last 20 years. I mean, before that, I was in the fashion business. And when you're in the fashion business, there is no other business. Mm -hmm. um, and especially back in the 90s. Um, so completely in that hole. So when I left fashion and moved to LA is when I really started to look at um, the world around me, really. And the first thing I bought when I got to LA and I had a new apartment, I left most of what I had in New York there. Mm -hmm was a vintage wishbone chair <laughs> um, that um, was original. It's the orange color. Oh, yeah. And it, and it had the original lacquer on it. Um, it was just perfectly patina. And I'm sitting in it right now, actually. Wow. Um, so I still have it. It's now been with me for 22 years. 
that was the, 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 the first thing I ever really noticed. I knew about Scandinavian furniture, of course, and in a way had experienced it, but I never really looked at it. And um, that was uh, uh, the beginning of a long love affair because I go to it before I go to anything else now. Uh, and there are reasons why. I'm a very practical person, and I feel like design's not good unless it works well. Mm-hmm. I'm not as concerned about aesthetics as I am about the way things feel and the way things work. And I feel like, you you know, Danish furniture really is not only functional, but is made with excellent quality and craftsmanship. Mm -hmm. It's built to last. Mm -hmm. So, you know, has great value. And it's also beautiful. And honestly, I feel like a lot of it is incredibly sexy in a very brainy way Mm -hmm. i know a lot of people wouldn't think that but i think that you know it's like in an intelligent way it can be very sexy and humorous i mean i think of like a fin jewel pelican chair how humorous that is and a chieftain chair by fin jewel too like that is a chair that to me in a very masculine way is incredibly sexy i've looked at it something that fills a lot of spaces for me and they just always work um it's easy to place a clint dining chair when you show it to a client it it, it's so classic and and it's so comfortable um that it just if you show it to someone they'll they'll love it and they'll keep it you know and that's really important to me that they keep what they acquire I agree wholeheartedly because that long-term relationship that you started this story with, the 22 years you've had with that vintage wishbone chair, is one of the things that makes a space have roots, makes it not feel disposable, makes it not feel like you could erase it and replace it so fast. And when you feel like it can be erased and replaced, you feel transient. You feel like you don't belong. And so there is something, I think, about when you populate a space with objects that were crafted lovingly with a sensuality and sensitivity to the materiality of the piece and that are meant to live or outlive you even, your scale is such that you don't feel like you're the most important thing in the room. I know that sounds weird, but, um, but I think it gives you a sense of value and, and it reflects back to your own personal values. So it's really grounding in that way. I totally understand. And you know, the other thing about Danish furniture to me is that it's, it's, it's quiet because it really works almost with anything in any environment, but it also has a lot of presence Mm -hmm. and it can adapt yeah, I have a, I actually have an Anna Ditzel chair in my home. It's, uh, uh, I believe it's a model 83, I think. And Stephen has the same chair. We both have the same vintage chairs in our apartments because it's just really comfortable. It's the perfect height. It's the perfect seat. I love sitting in it. I actually meditate in it. Now, Stephen's is in leather and it looks very different from mine because mine is upholstered in a Tibor boucle in a really bright green because I, I love color. Hmm. And so my chair looks incredibly, I mean, it looks completely different from his. And it, and it, in my apartment, it looks completely different from his. So I always feel like it, it, it can adapt really well to almost any environment. And what you're getting in the end is just a really great piece of furniture. And it's not just looks. It's, it's more than that. I'm a big fan, as you can see. It has worked for me, and, and I have to thank you, you know, Eric, because it's really helpful to have your product. That's very nice. <laughs> uh, and also thank you for making it so well to this day, because that's not the case with everything. No, you know? that's true. An Eames chair, vintage Eames chair, is very different from a new Eames chair. And I, and I have this conversation with clients all the time. Because they're like, why am I paying for this expensive vintage chair when they still make it? And it's so much less. And like, because it's not the same chair. And because I hate bringing things into the world um, that are not as good as the original. And um, you do make it as good as the original. And that is very appreciated. You should know that. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
No, but that's very true. And and you know the, the, the strange part is that uh, I live in a house from uh, 1670, a r- real old house with a moat and the whole lot, really romantic, and uh, it fits in there as well. I am furnished it, of course, pri- not entirely, but uh, primarily with my uh, our own furniture. And in such an old house, it still looks fantastic. And you can have a John Porson house, which is. Uh, square and simple, and uh, you have the same feeling. So it's true that they are classical, and uh, and, and they are, you get into a good mood when you when you look at them. And, if, and strangely, we are still making, can take a chair like the, the wishbone chair. We, we Sometimes we change the colors, or we, we do a little thing to them uh, so, uh, to, to pep them up a little bit, and bingo, they, they sell again like uh, hotcakes, because they are very attractive. I must say, although I'm a Dane, I cannot help it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, if they weren't attractive, no, we'd call you biased. But unfortunately, it's just it's just a fact. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the the company is over 112 years old, and as we just heard in that very touching ode of gratitude from Roman, he's grateful that a company like Carl Hansen and Son has survived and is still churning out with uh, the same degree of quality and craftsmanship that you always have. And so from a business perspective, how do you do it and what is the trick? Well, uh, I, I must say we do uh, work with, with craftsmen, and this is very important for us, that the craftsmen are of well-educated, and we do that ourselves. I mean, we have uh, a big exclusive workshop for uh, for apprentices. We have 25 apprentices here in the factory, and they learn the trade right from the basic, how to make a a drawer, how to make a, a, a piece of uh, furniture like they used to do in about 100 years ago. And then we slowly but surely built them up to, at the end, being able to operate a CNC uh, electronic uh, machine. Uh, some of them that have flair for it, they learn how to program and things like that. So, you know, we, we stay in uh, with, the, with the technology, but the craftsmanship is still there. And, and we still work with lots of craftsmen here in the factory. So the whole finishing of the furniture and the surfacing and the weaving and the upholstering and all that is all done by hand. I think that is also part of the charm of the furniture. That is that there is a, that is human people that have looked at it and have done things to it. I think also the environmentally part of the of the furniture means a lot. We work in, in more or less exclusively in wood and and nature's own mm-hmm. products like uh, leather and and wool and things like mm-hmm. that. We also work with uh, exhausts and things like that. So all waste from the factory is used for burning uh, the uh, heating up. Four hundred and seventy houses around the factory with uh, the waste from the factory. Ah. So nothing is left as waste. You can say. It's it's being used for heating, and this is uh, this is also very nice. It sounds like you, with your values in the right place, you're investing in in your own longevity by training workers. So you're offering mm-hmm. not only opportunity to people who want to learn and who want to acquire this craft, but you're also ensuring that you have a workforce to pull from that is has the standards that you need in order to make the types of projects that you make, but it also sounds like I'm hoping that your sustainability measures are also cost effective because that's. (laughs) Well, it does cost money, but it is important for us that we, that we have a clean conscious as well when we produce uh, uh, the furniture that we do. If we'd spoil the, 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 the earth, I mean, this is no good. But I think also that our customers demand it. They love that that it is a clean product, and therefore I'm I'm proud to do it. Absolutely, and that's what I was I was kind of getting at. I mean, hopefully they're cost effective. But even if they're not, it does nobody any good to destroy the land where you're doing your thing, Correct. or the planet, or to alienate your customers, or to operate with cost effectiveness in mind and not your greater sense of values for the society and the planet that Correct. you live on. That is really lovely to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and but I think we are just a little ahead of, uh, perhaps a little ahead of everybody else, but because I think we all have to do it. You know, if we are becoming more and more conscious of it, I think the next generation will demand it and, and uh, be much more conscious of the environment than, than uh, my generation have been. 
Mm -hmm. So I think that is important. I got to tell you also that it's beyond the way you make it because it's also when it goes into when it goes out into the world, it, it is sustainable in that you hold on to it, and that in itself is a huge thing. Um, I literally have nightmares about the amount of landfill that our business brings into the world all the time. So I'm a big proponent of people buying things that they can hold on to and that their kids can hold on to and that their grandchildren hold on to. And your furniture fits that bill. And so it goes beyond the way you make it. It has a life that uh, I think also helps with the environment. It's not disposable by all means. It's it's something that you keep. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. And I love that you brought that up, Roman. And I, I want to talk about your creative process a little bit too, because I find it fascinating. In the book, Design Commune, you said about your work, and I'm quoting you, it's not about us, it's about the clients. So if there's a hallmark in our work, it's about making it feel as personal to them as possible. People's identities and personalities are layered, so their interiors have to be just as layered. It's about conjuring a physical manifestation of something extremely personal, an emotion, a desire, a dream. I mean, <laughs> this is a big question, but how do you go about accomplishing that? <laughs> that would require a tremendous amount of sensitivity. So can you give us a sense of your process? You know, it's not that hard. <laughs> All you need to do is you have to involve your client. You have to make your client a member of the design team. That's how it works. It, it's their space. So to me, it's always been very clear. They have to be involved. And when I speak to a client for the first time, I make sure that they understand that that's the way we work, that they have to invest their time and they have to be generous with their lives so that we can actually help them figure out who they are and how they want to live because that's really our goal. It's to create spaces that reflect who they are and how they want to live. It involves getting to know them. It involves, there's a process that we go through of asking questions and also of um, showing them visuals because words sometimes are not enough. Uh, they're never enough, actually. So there is a process we go through, but in the end, it's just really keeping them engaged throughout the process so that you make sure that what you're doing and what you're making is right for them. Mm -hmm. That's the only way. Usually the client that comes to us is, uh, they come to us because they, they feel something. You hear it all the time. It's like, I, I stayed at Ace and I just felt something. Mm -hmm. Or uh, I went to a friend's house and the way you did it, I, I, I just didn't want to leave the room and I didn't know why. It's always this thing like, I don't know why, mm -hmm. right? So it's something that they felt. And I think what they felt is just a great deal of personality in the room. They felt like someone lives there. Yes, I will say personality. I've experienced several of your hotels, um, and I will say I felt the same thing. But it's not just personality. There is a depth. I think probably because there's a historical depth to what you're designing. I feel like the references and the associations are not all from the same time period, so it doesn't feel mm. super specific, and it allows me to be me while also feeling something that the room is adding well, there's a lot of research that goes into it. And, and also, it, that's the fun. Like, I'm a big lover of, like, what I call brothers and sisters from different mothers, <laughs> which is, that you know, so a happy. Swedish rug. Yeah. Like a Swedish rug, and you look at it close, and you're like, is that Swedish or is that Navajo? Right? Yeah. right? I'm fascinated by all those things, which I've discovered later in life because I didn't go to school for this. So I've discovered it as I go along, right? And as I work on things and as the project calls for a certain amount of a certain kind of research. So that's the fun for me is learning, right? About things. So that's why I really like taking projects that are very different in style because, oh, time to learn about, you know, Spanish colonial. Oh, time to learn about danish architecture you know what i mean like and and so the process of creating something in that style it gives me an education that's the fun of it you know i i'm a big fan of secessionism you know the, the secessionist period in austria and so i went finally because i felt like such a like a imposter <laughs> like not ever going there and being such a such a proponent of it right and it was uh, eye-opening, but I, I had already studied a lot of it. And in a way, I feel a little bit like Scandinavian design is, is that way too. Like I'm a faker because I've never been there. 
<laughs> and um, I had plans, actually. Stephen and I were I had planned a three-week trip last July. We had done all the work, mm. had, you know, completely booked everything. Um, so we had to cancel it. But I'm still going to go, you know, um, as soon as I can, because that is one of the best and most fun things about what we do. It's acquiring that, that education and looking at how these things, how all things connect in one way or another. I'm fascinated by that, how cultures that are on different sides of the world have connectivity yes. and in their, in their history and their DNA. I love that we're kind of connecting cultures from across the world right now in this conversation. And I have to ask, mm. have you been to uh, Eric's factory? No, I've never been to Denmark. I'm, are you kidding? I'm dying to. It's like it's the next thing. I've been wanting to go forever, and we're supposed to go to Denmark in July. So the you know the pandemic kind of threw a, a wrench into that. But um, but Eric, I'm coming. You must. You must. And you are most. You are most welcome. I can tell you, very welcome. Thank you. I, I Thank look you. forward to seeing you here. But come in in summer. In summer, please, where it's yes. bright and light and, and, and beautiful. Now it's dark and cold and misery. <laughs> It'll be in July or, yes. or August for sure. Very good, very good. Yes. Okay, but, I want, I want to come to... have been to California? <laughs> yes, oh yes. I've been all over the States. I've been all over the world. I travel a lot. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's the other thing about Danish design. I, I feel like it really speaks a common language with California. Um, I really do, and especially in architecture. You know, I've looked at the, those Sorensen houses and Utsen. And, and in fact, there's a house that's in our portfolio that we did in San Francisco. We call it uh, handcrafted modern is what the keyword is for the, for in our portfolio. But it's, it's a beautiful house that is hand built. It took seven years to build in, in San Francisco and it's a small house. There's quite a bit of your furniture in it, actually. Yeah. The client's favorite chair is a Fritz. Pennington signature chair oh, in yes. the living room. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. It's his absolute favorite chair. And that house is completely inspired by the houses uh, designed by, by Sorensen and Utsen, you know, in materiality and in scale and everything. And it fits so well there. And so I feel like there's a, a real common language between, especially Northern California and uh, Denmark. San Francisco is a is a very, very attractive and big market for us. People there are, are quite European in their way of thinking and, and, and in the way of, uh, of, can you say, designing and, and, and building and so on. They, they, they seem, we seem to have a good uh, reputation and a good, we're very, very close to each other there. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we have a good market there, I must say. I, I feel like we have a pretty clear picture of the common language between California and, and Denmark in terms of this, Roman, do you have any ideas about the rest of America? Like, is there a, a void or a space that Danish design particularly fills? Well, I mean, because it is in a way so, um, so flexible, mm -hmm. right? Like it really can work in almost any interior. I feel like it is all over America already. That's true. But it, it's not obvious, you know, it's not an obvious thing it kind of blends, you know, which is a good thing, honestly. It's it's not about it calling attention to itself. It's about being integrated into whatever environment it's in. And I think that's why so many designers go to it. It transforms itself. So this brings up something that I think about sometimes, which is uh, it's timeless, right? It, almost in this way that it doesn't call attention to itself, but it's so well made that it can last for, for generations and generations. So it becomes part of our subconscious almost because it works in so many environments. It doesn't call attention to itself in a way that stands out. And yet it does add warmth and history and depth and care and love and generosity and craftsmanship and sensuality and all of those things. So how does timeless design evolve and not stay static? We are also working with young, talented uh, architects uh, in Denmark and uh, and uh, internationally also and i must say uh, there are there, there's still talent there uh, and there are good ideas and we are kind of building on to what the old masters left us uh, taking uh, taking it from there and we have some young uh, talented architects which are bringing out uh, products now 
which I must say I'm 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 very impressed of, and uh, we have uh, we have a fantastic sofa that is coming out now called Sidewoods. And sidewards uh, is a funny name, but uh, when you sit in mm-hmm. it, you inv- it, it's a two seater. You in, you you get to see each other. You actually you That's you cool. are f- you're facing each other, and it is a young uh, architect called Rikki Frost. And uh, her thinking of doing that sofa was that she's she's a little bit uh, opponent to people sitting with their iPhones or their iPads and things like that, and uh, not coming not speaking together. And she made a sofa that you invent immediately. You sit in it, your face half facing each other, you sidewards. You're sitting sidewards, yeah? and it is a it's a great thing. And uh, I, we have tried it, and people start talking mm. to each other. And what a beautiful thing! What a beautiful and what thing. a nice thought behind it. Eh? And and these are more modern ways of uh, of creating furniture and creating uh, things in in our uh, everyday life. Which I feel is uh, is is quite fantastic and very nice. That is a, a beautiful example of a response to our modern crisis of connection, as we all sort of sink into this <laughs> digital divide. And then currently, with the pandemic, we're even against our will more disconnected than we've ever wanted to be. When we are able to sit on the same couch again, <laughs> what I yeah. want more than anything <laughs> is meaningful conversation with somebody. Correct. Correct. <laughs> correct. <laughs> I think the sofa has a great future. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, this yeah. has been such an enlightening and charming conversation. I feel so grateful to have been, you know, involved. I, I loved hearing the two of you Talk about your work, but also talk about how you, each of your work has influenced each other. I think that kind of intercontinental, intergenerational creativity is baked into both of your companies in terms of how you operate. And it's been just so lovely to be a part of it. So I just want to thank you both very much. Thank you for having us. It was a pleasure. Great, great pleasure. Yeah, it's been my pleasure, really. Hey, thanks for listening. To learn more about Carl Hansen and Son and Commune Design, read the show notes. Click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app, or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino, production assistance from Laura Jaramillo, and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk.